everyone. Welcome to the Defiant Podcast. The internet of money is being built with blockchain technology and without banks. We call it DeFi, short for decentralized finance. And this is where you can hear the builders and users of this cutting edge world tell their stories firsthand. I'm your host, Camila Russo. In this week's episode, we speak with Dan Robinson, a research partner at Paradigm, one of the most active VC funds in DeFi and crypto. One of the fund's investments is in Uniswap, where Dan also had a central role in the design of V3, the latest version of DeFi's most popular decentralized exchange. Dan talks about why Uniswap was so exciting as an investment. He said, at the time, a lot of blockchain applications still involved some centralized parties and custodied funds. But Uniswap was unique because it was really hands-off, a self-contained system with no admin keys. The other aspect that was fascinating was that it allowed any asset to be traded rather than some particular set. But the issue was that it wasn't very capital efficient, meaning funds and liquidity pools for any given token would go mostly unused. And that's what they set out to solve with V3. The solution Dan helped find was concentrated liquidity or the idea of concentrating funds at the price range where an asset is traded the most. The challenge was doing that without giving up minimized governance. We talk about how the new design has fared in the three months since its launch. Dan also talks about his big ambitions for Uniswap. He believes that most liquidity will move to V3 and that the new concentrated liquidity design will have an influence on the whole tech space as more projects start to optimize for capital efficiency. We also talk about minor extractable value and how he sees projects are evolving from those trying to democratize MEV to those trying to stop it from even happening. We talk about his views on governance and how he believes protocols should try their best to minimize decision making. His main area of focus though continues to be on AMMs. In the long term, he believes AMMs will have an impact in investment, similar to what exchange traded funds did to stocks allowing anyone from big institutions to small individual investors to earn a passive income by providing liquidity, something that only large market makers could do before. One note before we dive into the interview. Because of connectivity issues, the sound sometimes cuts off. I'm very sorry about that. Before we get to it, here's a word about our sponsors. Kyber's Dynamic Market Maker, or DMM, is the first decentralized exchange designed to react to market conditions to optimize fees, maximize returns, and provide extremely high capital efficiency for liquidity providers. It aims to be a game changer for DeFi. Depositing tokens to earn fees is also fast and simple with this liquidity easily accessible by dApps, aggregators, or other users. Visit dmm.exchange now. Don't let high gas costs keep you out of Ethereum. At Balancer, you can trade all you want and get most of the gas costs back in your pocket. In their new Bal for Gas campaign, traders are receiving six figures worth of Bal tokens every week. And with V2 just around the corner, Balancer is becoming the one-stop shop for DeFi liquidity. Balancer V2 brings stable pools and weighted pools tightly integrated under a single protocol, flash loans lending via asset managers, and much more. Check it out at balancer.finance. The new Kraken app is one of the best places to invest in some of the most popular DeFi assets 
like Uniswap, Aave, Polkadot tokens, and more. Just download the app and get started in minutes. Plus, you can earn additional rewards through Kraken's industry-leading staking product. Payouts are twice a week, and you can earn up to 20% annually on some of your favorite cryptos. Sign up today at kraken.com defiant, or type Kraken in the App Store to learn more. Ensign provides an easy way to build, scale, and monetize DeFi investment strategies. If high gas prices are shutting you out of DeFi, fear not. Ensign is now running a gas subsidy program. The app makes it easy for investors to pull together on strategies lowering costs. The Ensign interface allows anyone to trade, lend, deposit to AMM pools, farm, stake, and more. It is a non-custodial solution and allows for real-time reporting, security, and transparency. Sign up today on Enzyme.finance. Experience DeFi. Deposit, earn, and borrow on Aave. Aave is a decentralized, open-source, and non-custodial liquidity protocol to earn interest on deposits and borrow assets. Deposit and start earning interest in real-time directly in your wallet and swap any of your deposited assets at any time to get some of the best deals on the market. Aave protocol liquidity pools are now available on Ethereum and on the sidechain Polygon. Head over to app.ave.com to get started today. Interested in DAOs? Wondering how to DAO? Colony aims to be the biggest, baddest DAO framework out there. And it's easy. Spin up a DAO in three minutes for half a penny. Issue a token, raise money, govern your treasury, and so much more. Zero coding required. Already got a token? Great. Colony will give it superpowers in seconds. DAOs are all about voting, right? Wrong. Colony is about getting things done. And voting on every little thing ain't that. So in Colony, votes are only necessary if there's a disagreement. Head to colony.io and follow at Join Colony on Twitter to learn more. Want to DAO right now? Hit up clny.io slash bounty to join their bounty program and earn their forthcoming token, CLNY. All right. Okay. So here we are with Dan Robinson. Dan, welcome to the Define Podcast. It's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on. Yay. Um, yeah, so Dan is a research partner at Paradigm, one of the most active um, VC funds in DeFi and crypto. Uh, they, they're invested in some of the, the most successful DeFi projects. Um, Dan has pioneered key research in the space, uh, like um, the Uniswap V3 new liquidity provision model, his research about um, uh, MEV, uh, minor extractable value, and a bunch of other stuff that we'll get into. Um, he's like very deep into the space, so I'm, I'm excited about this conversation. Uh, but uh, I, as always, I like to get to know my guests a little better and um, see how they, you know, how you got into, into the space. So what got you interested in crypto in the first place? Sure. So, so when I first got into crypto, I was uh, in law school and then, a, and then an unhappy lawyer for a couple of years. So I took the long way around to, into the industry. Um, once, I, once I decided I didn't want to practice law anymore, I left to become a programmer and joined a, a crypto startup called Chain, uh, which was acquired by, by Stellar a few years later. And then I joined Paradigm uh, 
two and a half years ago, I'd been uh, friends with with uh, one of the co-founders, Matt Huang, um, uh, for a very long time. And so when he and Fred Ersen from Coinbase uh, started started Paradigm, I was uh, uh, one of the early hires and have helped, uh, yeah, sort of build out build out this this strange thing we've got uh, called a research team. I should say, uh, you know, I think uh, Paradigm is is a crypto asset investment firm, um, but Anything I say on this podcast is, is my views and not those of the firm. Um, and nothing that I say on this, of course, is investing advice. Of course. Um, great. Okay. So interesting background there. Uh, lawyer, also a developer, like hacker um, and researcher. Um, what, what specifically do you think kind of drew you into crypto when, like, as you were studying law? So... I was I was kind of fascinated by Bitcoin when I uh, when I first saw it, and you know went through we got got, got a little bit into it, um, but really it was when the Ethereum white paper came out um, that I uh, got really excited about crypto because I thought the the con- you know Bitcoin had this con- created this concept of, of programmable money um, sort of like programmable at the at the protocol layer, um, but you couldn't do all that much uh, with Bitcoin. Still can't really do all that much in terms of programming with Bitcoin, or or rather, there's a lot there's a lot you can do, but it mostly involves clever workarounds to do really really simple stuff. Um, and so uh, when Ethereum came out, I think I got very excited because um, uh, well, it's sort of just fun to play around with. And so I was I was between um, uh, this law firm job that I hated, uh, just sort of like exploring and trying uh, trying out. Um, uh, you know, back then, after when Ethereum launched, I think like there still there still wasn't very much much to do on it. But you could just and talk about and see just sort of the theory of that everyone was talking about what would um, uh, what it would become. And I, I I thought that was just sort of really fascinating. So got deep into that kind of Ethereum online research community through that. And you cover a lot of this in the in, in your book, of course. But um, back then, yeah, I mean, mostly just hanging out on Reddit. Um, and then eventually on ETH Research, when that forum was created, you end up just sort of like steeped in this lore and also connected to a very interesting and fascinating Ethereum research community. So that's how I got to meet um, Carl through, through him. I met uh, uh, Carl Flourish, um, who was at the Ethereum Foundation, um, now, at, now at Optimism. Um, uh, through him, I met, I met Hayden, who was uh, uh, Hayden Adams, co-founder of, uh, of Uniswap, or founder of Uniswap, and um, uh, Vitalik, and you know, sort of the rest of the... Of this like great sort of very like research um, uh, researcher identifying community um, within Ethereum, so I, I really uh, enjoy that. And then just generally, I think within within crypto, there's a lot of uh, there's just sort of like fascinating stuff going on, and um, uh, sort of fun people who just like, who spend a lot of time thinking about it. So that's been my uh, that's sort of what's drawn me to it. Okay, very cool. And then okay, so you you were um, just part of this Ethereum research community before starting at Paradigm and you were able to meet Hayden, uh, founder of Uniswap there. Um, and then when you joined Paradigm, um, have had the fund already invested in, in, in Uniswap or did that come after you joined? We invested in Uniswap um, in so, so, sometime soon after. It was the first investment um, that, I wor- that I worked on uh, right after we joined. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, like back then, Uniswap had already been launched, and it was already uh, sort of like growing in, in um, popularity among the Ethereum community. Um, 
and then just sort of the growth since then, of course, has been extraordinary. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not sure if you can like talk about this, but like what was kind of your your thesis behind the Uniswap investment? If you can, like, let me know because I really want to use this podcast. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think what, what I found very appealing about Uniswap was that it was an application that seemed not to really make any compromises relative to, in terms of decentralization or security, relative to, to, the, to sort of the base layer. So Ethereum was this um, pretty hardened, although at the time, even, even the base layer was not, I wouldn't necessarily call it, call it that hardened or secure, mm-hmm. but uh, it was, this, it was this, this platform where, you know, its code was supposed to be, again, uh, uh, it's a little ironic to say this, but code was supposed to be sort of unstoppable and, um, and non-custodial, but a lot of the applications that we were seeing on it still involved um, some centralized parties, still involved um, ultimately, like, you know, some decisions being made by, by small groups, I think, and, and in many cases, I think uh, funds still being custodied in one way or another. I think what was really interesting about Uniswap, and this is, this is something that's sort of just unique to, um, to that particular algorithm, is that it, it really is, especially like Uniswap v1, incredibly like hands-off. Like it, it was. It's just a, it's just a perpetual motion machine where once it's there, it, it like actually doesn't need, doesn't need to be maintained. Other than again, the base uh, Ethereum protocol still needs to keep, needs to keep running. But it's just this self-contained system, and there's, there's no admin keys to it. Uh, and I found that just extremely fascinating um, because it's one of the few systems in, in crypto, really, especially at the time, that really, that really struck me uh, as being like that, that decentralized or, or really. Um, uh, immutable or invincible. So I think that that was very appealing. Another was the permissionlessness of it, not just in the sense of decentralization, but in the sense of it allowed any assets to be traded rather than like some, you know, some particular set. And this was, it was the first DEX um, at all to support um, arbitrary uh, token, ERC-20 tokens. And I think that was just a huge uh, leap forward in that like it's you know it's, there's been tens of thousands of tokens listed on Uniswap I think um, over the years and a lot of weird experiments using it and you don't have to go get to add a token to Uniswap you just do it and now suddenly you have this uh, uh, ability to, to to market make in these in these uh, tokens so I think these these ideals this this immutability this um, permissionlessness were really at the at the heart of Uniswap, um, I think they were what excited me about Ethereum. They excited me about Uniswap, and then um, uh, still are really core to I think Uniswap's values today. Yeah, um, yeah, totally agree. And do you, how instrumental do you think Uniswap has been to DeFi as a whole? So I think there's some very clear direct influences, most notoriously in. Uh, forks, direct forks like like sushi swap. Um, I think there's it's had some effect on the general philosophy of of DeFi, in that I think people um, you you see people actually bend over backwards a little more now to to try to support permissionless addition of arbitrary tokens to try to have um, uh, not just not just like decentralized governance, but ideally governance minimization and and sort of no governance of over stuff that doesn't need it. Um, it hasn't been maybe as influential in some of those areas as as I might like, but 
uh, it also, you know, like Uniswap, it's, it's unique that Uniswap is able to do that. It's hard to have a lending protocol that, for example, would, would be, uh, could support arbitrary assets. It would be hard to, to have like an insurance protocol that could support something like that. Like you, uh, it's, it's in this, it's in this particular niche where there happens to be a very elegant, um, algorithm that sort of works across all these, all these different assets. Um, and so I think like we're still looking for things like that that can be applied so to really sort of like a, a transport that philosophy elsewhere. Yeah, that, that would be so interesting to see like a, um, a Uniswap-like version of a lending protocol. Um, but I think, I think, yeah, I don't think we've like seen that yet, like something as I kind mean, of hands-off. Yeah. Uniswap a protocol called uh, uh, Kashi, right? Um, yeah, which is uh, which is uh, supposed to be. I haven't I haven't looked that closely into it, but it's a pairwise lending protocol. And what's interesting is, you know, I think like uh, Sushi Swap, they haven't really done any. They, they're the only product that they actually um, that's really successful has been there has been the decks that they that they cloned just wholesale from Uniswap. But they have been doing these other interesting things, and I would love for them to to really focus and lean into some of these other areas where they're trying to be innovative. Uh, innovative. And I think one area is in uh in lending and then we've seen a few other protocols out there actually that um uh are trying to bring this pairwise lending approach to market i think it's it's very challenging it's a lot harder um mm. uh than even like sort of like uniswap uh at least uniswap v1 was and uh, for what it did for dexes Sure. Okay. And then I, I want to talk about Uniswap V3, um, which is the new version of Uniswap that launched recently in March. And it was, you know, so long awaited and it really kind of changed the way um, the whole protocol was structured. And uh, I understand you had kind of a, a, a key role there in, in designing um, at least kind of the liquidity provision side of, of, of V3. Yeah, so uh, you know, V3. I was I was talking about how Uniswap this algorithm kind of works for all assets, but of course it, it doesn't work uh, ideally for all assets. And there are some asset pairs, um, most most famously stablecoin pairs, where Uniswap is just not it's not a very good fit. Like most of the of the assets in it end up wasted because the price only really um, for these for these particular assets is almost always supposed to be around around one. Um, so that was one of the that was one of sort of the core problems we were trying to solve with it, and this was one that actually after we started working on Uniswap v3, Curve actually came out, um, which which solved this problem specifically. But with v3, we were actually trying to solve even a more general problem, which is even in pairs uh, of uh, of sort of like normal assets, volatile assets, ETH, USDC, most of the liquidity in that pool is never touched. Most of the assets. In an ETH USDC pool are never touched, and so like this, uh, you know, I'd been I'd been um, uh, you know long after like I started I started like looking at Uniswap and I thought I understood it pretty well. I actually had a conversation with Martin Koppelman from uh, Gnosis, and uh, he pointed out to me something that you know just was very unintuitive to me about Uniswap's capital efficiency, um, which is that twenty five percent of the liquidity in any Uniswap pool is reserved and not touched um, unless the price, uh, the relative price of the two assets moves by a factor of 16 in either direction. 
And that doesn't happen very often for most assets, even if if you SEC, you know, that's that's happened like a, like a couple of times in the past uh, the past few years. Um, but uh, that's, you know, so like most pools could just be you, you, you can like almost double the capital efficiency of, of a pool just by sort of like dropping these really the, these the, the really extreme price, uh, the assets, uh, the tokens that would be used only at really extreme prices. So that observation led us to uh, develop this feature of concentrated liquidity, which is the feature at the heart of, of Uniswap V3, which allows liquidity providers to, to provide in any concentrated range. Now, uh, the big thing was we didn't want to give up that permissionlessness or that governance minimization. We didn't want to be choosing ranges for people um, and like and or saying when you add an asset that like that that you know governance would have to decide what liquidity where liquidity was located along the curve. And so that's it required a much bigger engineering lift to design this protocol so that any liquidity provider could provide at any range, but do it in a way that was still that was still capital efficient. And so that's what that's what Uniswap V3, uh, that's what we built Uniswap V3 to achieve. Um, so, okay. So I, I, I guess like to catch uh, people up, um, the, the, the main problem was that, and, and when you talk about capital efficiency, it's this idea of in Uniswap V1, V2, liquidity providers, um, had to provide, um, ETH and whatever token pair they, they were providing liquidity for. And that liquidity was, uh, spread across kind of a price curve. Um, which didn't account for uh, where the 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 most commonly traded price was. So you'd end up with kind of this uh, like far ends of the curve where the liquidity provided was was never touched. Um, so so now in in Uniswap V3, the idea is that you have like this concentrated liquidity that's concentrated on the price. Uh, pairs that are the most traded on. So you don't have like this kind of unused capital at like both ends of the curve. Um, and it's interesting because I was um, today looking at uh, stats for right now for a volume and total value lot on Uniswap V2, which is still running, right? And Uniswap V3. And there's still more value locked on Uniswap V2. Uh, but there's more volume traded on Uniswap V3. So that kind of speaks to that capital efficiency. You're able to have more volume on a DEX, even with less capital in inside of, of the protocol. So, I mean, that already shows you, it's kind of like achieving its, at least like in part, its, um, its goal. That's absolutely right. And that's that was sort of the key goal with V3 was to not need you know, $10 billion in TVL um, in order to provide to provide liquidity, and I think TVL has been something of a vanity metric, and it was honestly for for Uniswap for a while. We sort of uh, equated higher TVL with higher liquidity because that's how Uniswap V1 and V2 work. That you need more TVL, uh, liquidity is proportional TVL. In uh, in V3, it isn't, and I think that uh, the uncoupling that really makes it a lot. You know, it makes it a lot more capital efficient. It also so, so I think yeah, that that was and that was a big goal. The other thing is that I think it it opens up this big design space for um, uh, people sort of designing custom curves. I think is cool that you can have people by combining a bunch of different V three positions at different prices kind of simulate different curves. So that's what a lot of my research recently has been is how do we uh, if if you have sort of a design for a custom market maker because I like to design AMMs, um, 
how can you implement this on top of Uniswap v3 so it gets aggregated with everybody else's liquidity? Um, and that's that's been my one of my recent research projects. Oh, interesting. Okay, so that means, um, okay, so designing for different curves would mean designing AMMs for um, like just like specific. Uh, types of tokens that trade in like different ways so like an example would be like if curve didn't exist um like maybe you would create an amm that was like specifically designed for stable coins right and and maybe there's like other types of tokens that trade in like very specific ways that require like different types of curves is that the idea that's right yep so so curve yeah curve is one and that's a relatively simple one in that you can have a a strategy that just basically provides very concentrated liquidity around the price of one, and then maybe a little liquidity at other prices, uh, like Curve does. Um, and yeah, and then that AMM basically would would be exactly it would simulate simulate Curve, um, but for the user they would just sort of they would just see like see your AMM, um, but it would all be then added to to V3. Um, there, you can do more complicated things. So like like Balancer, for example, allows these uh, different weights of of pools. And in fact, you can simulate a Balancer pool. I show this in a recent blog post of mine called Uniswap V3, the Universal AMM. Uh, you can simulate a Balancer pool by adding liquidity um, to different ticks on on Uniswap. What actually ends up looking like a an exponential curve in liquidity mm-hmm. space. So it's this, it's a sort of fun um, uh, derivation there, but. But that's you know I ultimately like I'm I'm very curious to see what other people build with it and so I'm I'm working on kind of infrastructure to help be able to do that. So f- for um to replicate a balancer kind of AMM would I mean wouldn't you need to I mean could you also just make it so that people can provide different uh, types of uh, tokens in a pool? Uh, what do you, what do you mean? Like, um, so because you need like on, on Uniswap, you need ETH as like, like you have like two pairs, but uh, Balancer has like, a, like a pools of like many different tokens. So uh, could yeah. you still right, do right, that yes. on top of Uniswap? You know, that's a great question. And when I'm talking about bal- simulating Balancer on Uniswap, I mean two asset Balancer pool weights. Oh. So like an 80-20 pool. I don't. That's a great question. Now, like, I'm not sure how to simulate a three asset pool um, on top of V3. You may not be able to. Um, personally, I think like uh, I think two is a pretty magic number in terms of in terms of trading pairs. Like, there's a reason that um, most uh, exchanges quote pairs, and you, know, you have like trading pairs rather than trading triplets. Um, <laughs> but I do think yeah, there there are valid reasons to have to have uh, pools with more than with more than two assets, and it just hasn't been a focus of Uniswap. Sure. Okay. Um, so do you think that, um, so, okay. So like Uniswap really impacted the DEX space, uh, since its launch in 2018, like since Uniswap launched, it really has been kind of like AMMs dominating the DeFi space with, uh, now this new type of, um, liquidity provision, this like concentrated liquidity, do you think like the same thing will happen to the DEX space and that, like everyone will move to this new new model. So, I think everyone will move to will move to Uniswap v three. Uh, that's 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 my hope. And I think like uh, you know it's it's a superset of uh, of like Uniswap v two, right? Like you can provide liquidity across the entire price range if you want on Uniswap v three. Um, so it's it's in my view like strictly better, apart from some from some gas trade offs, um, strictly better 
sense. So I do think uh, ultimately liquidity should move off Uniswap v- v2 and the other Uniswap v2s out there like SushiSwap. Um, and I expect I expect that to go to, to v3. I do think it'll also have have more of an influence on uh, on the rest of the deck space. Um, and I do think we'll see people uh, trying to optimize for capital efficiency in different ways. We've seen with Curve uh, recently released a B2 white paper where they're trying to target um, uh, this issue of efficiency for, for arbitrary pairs, um, doing it in a, in a pretty different way from, from Uniswap V3. But um, I'm curious to see how that experiment works out. I do think we're going to start seeing, seeing more of that. It's also worth noting that uh, in some ways, V3 is winding back a bit of the Uniswap revolution where um, before Uniswap, it was it was commonly believed that the best way to do training was was on these order books because you have all this this configure configurability. And then Uniswap was like, well, what if there was just one strategy and you just pooled all your money in it, and it was just like you know, you, there's no order book. It's just, you have to provide orders in the entire across the entire range. V um, three looks a lot more like or like a hybrid between an order book and that and that strategy where you can efficiently provide it at the full range using that strategy, but you could also provide it in a very narrow range or by combining different um, positions make it look more like your arbitrary trading strategy, mm. and so that um, I think I think you know that ultimately, like I think Uniswap V3 is going to be very influential in how crypto and DeFi works. But I think it is like the next evolution where AMMs, uh, these sort of like constant product AMMs, have sort of taken us as far as they could go, and this we needed to make some concessions to the to something that looked a little more like the flexibility of an order book. That's so interesting. And I, I wanted to ask you about this because some of the like initial feedback that I've seen from users of, of Uniswap is that um, it isn't as user-friendly as V2. So it's just like more complicated. It requires more upkeep. Like uh, you have to like manually change your like ticks. Um, and so, I don't know. Do you think um, that... Is it possible that this new version uh, drives away more kind of novice kind of users and and makes it make makes it liquidity provision for more sophisticated traders? So, so first, you know, I think you like I said, you can still provide liquidity to V three in exactly the same way as V two if you're if you're a passive liquidity provider. You can just provide it across the entire range, and so ultimately, like I think V two doesn't stand a chance against against V three because um, ultimately, uh, if, if, if like passive liquidity providers on, on V3 can't compete with the active ones, then people on V2 forget about it because they're not even getting any of the volume. It's, so mm-hmm. they're, they're just going to get iced out. So that's, you know, I think ultimately, it's, it, I think it's an inevitability um, in that sense. I do think we've, we've seen, you know, right now, Uniswap V3 has really just like fabulous liquidity. I my understanding is a lot of it does come from more sort of professional active active market makers. I think ultimately the AMM exists for the benefit of, of traders and swappers. Ultimately what matters is really having deep liquidity and, um, and to be sort of like the, the, the best place to swap these assets. And so, and the liquidity providers, you know, whatever act, like the reason that, that Uniswap was great for it was that it, it made it easy for liquidity providers. But I think this compromise here makes it so much easier for like for advanced liquidity providers at least, um, or for people who are who are willing to, to maintain these more actively. That um, that just has has this, has this huge you know up to up to a thousand x or more um, capital efficiency benefit. We have started to see a lot of innovation on top of Uniswap v3 to make it easier for a passive liquidity provider to to not have to do their own rebalancing. 
um, but to still provide concentrated liquidity. And I think we're seeing a lot of innovation in that space. I think it's a very it's a it's a hard problem. Um, I'm not sure. You know, I think we'll have to see sort of experimentally what people develop to um, to do this. But I'm I'm very curious to see that. Um, okay. Yeah, it, it, it'll be interesting. So, so you're saying that, um, ideally there would be some, some innovation on top of Uniswap V3 that would allow passive liquidity providers and that maybe they, they wouldn't, I mean, they'd get less fees than active liquidity providers, but at least like now you'll have the choice of being a passive liquidity providers and okay, you'll get less fees, but then now like more sophisticated traders and market makers will find DeFi more appealing. And maybe like, just like the, the whole ecosystem will, will benefit from that. Just like from having more liquidity from these like more professional traders. Right, right. And ultimately is aggregated with the, with the pros you're getting this sort of pro rata share of the total volume. Mm. Um, and I think that's very powerful. Um, and like, and it's very different from how traditional markets work, where it's sort of as a passive like market maker who's not a professional, you can't really make money. Uh, you can't really get any order flow um, or make any profits from it um, because it's all, it's all very professionalized. And so you still get this pro rata share of all the volume. Um, that's with some caveats, but, uh, but yeah, I think, I think the, uh, in general, like Uniswap V3, I do think makes it a lot fairer than than a, a normal um, uh, than, an or, than a plain order book would. Super interesting. And then uh, one aspect that we haven't talked about is the NFT aspect. So right, so now because um, liquidity providers are uh, are providing liquidity to like a specific uh, uh, like uh, price uh, or like a place in the in the price curve uh you get uh nfts in exchange for your liquidity provision instead of erc20 tokens right um so what are some of the implications of this of getting nfts uh back and like what are like some interesting um things that you're already seeing maybe in like secondary markets trading of of these lp nfts yeah so i think uh this was a necessary compromise that we had to make uh, um, well, to support the concentrated liquidity feature, because now not all liquidity is created equal. Um, I think I think it's it was worth it, and in fact, I don't think it uh, relative to what V two was, where liquidity was a token. I'm not sure all that much. Um, and you do have this nice benefit of of having these pretty NFTs with the with mm -hmm. auto generated art um, for your for your uh, liquidity position. Um, I think the it requires some more. Uh, Activity to build stuff on top of it. Um, and so some examples of pe things people have done with Uniswap liquidity, like V2 liquidity tokens, is create lending markets where you can borrow against um, liquidity or, mm. um, or have uh, liquidity mining one where you can uh, incentivize people to provide this by having them stake their um, liquidity tokens in order to get some other token. You can still do those things, I believe, with, with Uniswap V3 liquidity positions. It just takes some more work. Um, it, it was uh, some more effort to go into the other the protocol built on top of it. Um, so, you know, I think it's it's a little it's a it, it it's a lot more flexibility with some you know with with a, with a little more effort. And I do think it took a while before we started to see liquidity tokens get used in creative ways. I think it'll take a while before we start to see these NFTs used. But I'm confident that um, people are going to find really interesting applications for them. All right. I mean, 
We'd have to see just like a, a more developed intersection between NFTs and DeFi to begin with, right? For people to be able to use NFT LP uh, tokens. Oh yeah, I mean, well, well, yes, yes. And I think generally, I don't think there's any way right now to borrow against NFTs as collateral, um, like, like art, digital art NFTs. And like mm -hmm. that would certainly also be be something that you could that you could do if you built that infrastructure. So yes. Yeah, no, um, it's it's like mind blowing, like just like the turns that finance is taking with <laughs> with all this stuff. Um, yeah. So, um, OK, and then like going to another topic, I, I wanted to ask you about um, your uh, post, uh, the Dark Forest, which I think is kind of becoming a, an Ethereum classic uh, at, at this point. Um, but if, if you can kind of explain about uh, this concept of um, the dark forest and um, a minor extractable uh, value and like why it's important and then kind of, yeah, I, I, I wanna ask you other questions about that. Sure. So so this was, this post was about a story that happened to me uh, last August. Um, to me, uh, me and my and my colleague Jojos, who who co-authored the post, I was I was in this position where I could effectively um, white hat hack a contract. It wasn't even I wouldn't even call it a call it a hack. It really was just like a call a function on a contract and just pick up some money that somebody had accidentally put there, and I could then I could give it back to them, um, and. I had this voice in the back of my mind telling me, actually, wait a minute, you don't call that function yet, because I'd heard a story from Phil Diane about this about this uh, uh, problem with that. So um, Phil, um, he's, just, he's a co-founder of Flashbots, which is a, a, a paradigm portfolio company when focused on MEV, and I'll talk about them in a second. But Phil had been uh, researching this thing, minor extractable value, for a while, and minor extractable value means uh, it's, it's something of a misnomer because it doesn't al it isn't always extracted by miners. Although in the long run, it it ultimately um, uh, we think is miner extracted value is, is anything any opportunities that are created by the Ethereum transaction state or by transactions that can then be uh, exploited and extracted by um, front running bots or or miners um, uh, on Ethereum. Of course, it's, it's a big and uh, flash bots uh, again, a parent portfolio company. Um, is is designed to basically help make it easier for miners to extract this extractable value in a in a non-wasteful um, and sustainable way. So uh, what Phil had told me about was a particular kind of front-running bot that he called a generalized front-running bot, and this meant that what, the, what this bot would do is we just look at all transactions and see can I do a copycat of that? Can I just copy and make money from it, like replacing the address of my own and if if I if they can, then they front run you, and so I'd heard about about this. I'd never seen one in the wild, and it wasn't it wasn't really all that common knowledge. Like a few people, Phil, Sam, Scott Bigelow, uh, uh, had sort of like seen these or, or heard about them, but it was you know I think I think uh, and I was just lucky to have heard about it. So tried to construct this elaborate way to get around it. Ultimately failed um, and did get front run by one of these bots um, by a matter of seconds, but. Um, uh, put out this post about it, which I was I thought was sort of this, this huge failure of mine. I was a bit I was a bit sheepish about putting out this post, but the response it got was great. I mean, I think it, I, it it traveled further than the Ethereum community 
um, because I think like, it was sort of a fun techno thriller. Uh, uh, it was read. so well, well written. Like oh, I, it you. was like a fun read. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, thank you. But uh, and then I think within Ethereum uh, helped helped it this this specific concept of of the generalized front running bots and and the dark forest metaphor, which was um, uh, from from a favorite science fiction book, The Dark Forest. Um, and then, and then further elevated this topic of MEV, which has been just a very big, um, uh, topic, especially in the past year in Ethereum. Yeah. Um, I, I think it was very helpful because I think like most people using Ethereum are affected by these, these bots, like these like front running bots, but I don't think many people are, are aware of it. And, you know, it's just like this really helpful metaphor of thinking about, um, the, Ethereum mempool or like uh, un unconfirmed transactions would be kind of the right way to describe it, right? Um, so like all these transactions in Ethereum are, are waiting to get uh, confirmed by miners, but while they're they're sitting there, um, they they are basically um, vulnerable to to these kind of monsters or like silent killers of the night <laughs> who are coming to to steal um, any value that's that's left. Um, or, or that's there kind of that can be can be stolen. So um, there's been like, yeah, there's been a lot of innovation in this space from projects who are trying to illuminate the forest. Um, I think there there's kind of this um, acceptance that there's not much you can do um, with like the value that's that's being left there by uh, by users. Uh, but at least I think there's like these projects that are trying to to make it more fair so that anyone um can 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 get that can have like have an opportunity to to get that value is is that right kind of like what's what's the innovation that that's you're right there that's right i think i think we we were in a period for a bit where this was dominated uh like the minor checkable value extraction these front-running bots racing each other with with these gas auctions and that's just a, it's a very inefficient way to do this. And it was driving up gas prices. Um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if Flashbots can take all the credit for the, for the falling gas prices. That as well. But I do think it's made the extraction of, of MEV somewhat, somewhat less of a, um, of an arms race between these, uh, these uh, front running bots. Really, I think, I do think we're going to have, a, we're going to need a solution to it that doesn't where the minor extractable value doesn't get doesn't get extracted at all and whether mm -hmm. that is is involves changes to application architecture whether it involves some kind of blinding of transactions also on the forefront of that research to really figure out how to make this um not just efficient to extract but really kind of like mev proof the entire system oh interesting i didn't know that was um possible or or, or there was like research being done for that that's cool there's some, yep, there's some ways, you know, we've, we've thought about how can we use cryptography for this? Can we use trusted execution environments like, like, uh, um, these, these, uh, hardware, uh, secure hardware for it. I think it's, it's still relatively early on. Ultimately, um, oh, there is actually, there's another, the project on, I think on Cosmos to use verifiable delay functions, this, this fancy cryptography in order to make transactions encrypted until they're included and then they and then they get decrypted by the by the um protocol so a very neat mm. um potential way to try to to try to make mev harder to extract and, and give give uh, users a little more privacy until their transactions are included 
Okay, super interesting. Um, okay, and then the the other um, piece of kind of research or like um, writing that I wanted to ask you about is something that you've already mentioned, um, minimize governance. Uh, so you've been kind of like um, a big supporter of minimized uh, governance. Uh, it's kind of what uh, first like drew you to, or like one of the reasons you um, you you wanted to invest in in Uniswap, right? Um, how how has that kind of thinking evolved over time? Because governance has become like such a big part of DeFi, like. Every every project is uh, forming a DAO and is trying to kind of decentralize it, its its management by giving um, ownership to its users and having them make uh, all the decisions via token votes. So it seems like the space is uh, turning towards kind of more governance uh, rather than less, as kind of everyone is trying to decentralize. And so that kind of like, just like makes them uh, just like hand over governance to to users. So um, how, how do you think kind of the DeFi ca can continue to decentralize, but still still be uh, like governance minimized? It seems like two kind of um, opposite things. Right. Well, I, I think what we're seeing in DeFi isn't an increase or decrease in in governance, we're we're seeing something more of a, basically a move from one kind of governance, which is governance by like an admin key, which a lot of projects um, have early on. Um, mm -hmm. And again, in some in some cases, uh, I think that's that's the appropriate uh, way for um, for early stuff to be uh, to be governed to governance by by a decentralized organization. And so, uh, you know, this is this is a change in how the decisions are made. But ultimately, you, you know, you, you've still got some kind of process that is making a decision that affects all the users of this application. And I think um, there are, if, when, you, when you're trying to design a protocol, if there's a way to do that where they're just, they're just a decision at all, um, that's, I think, mm. the, sort of the, the most hardened way to try to design a protocol. It, uh, it's maybe the, the most likely to be, to be resistant to, to attacks. Um, and I think we've only begun to see what, a potential like governance attack could look like. I think as we start to see um, DAOs, you know, we've met many DAOs out there with billion dollar treasuries. I think we're going to start to see sneaky attacks on on governance, like you could uh, voting things like that. That really could sort of put a, put um, some of these systems in jeopardy. And you know, so we're going to start seeing like an era of maybe governance extractable value, where where today, you know, early on mm. miners weren't extracting any of the miner extractable value, and it was kind of a niche thing to do. And now they're now they're all extracting it. I think like ultimately, as the market matures, I worry that we're going to see something similar with governance. And so, in my view, like I'm I'm very I'm searching really hard for system design don't involve these kinds of decisions that don't depend on a on either a single party or on some kind of like a majority token voting type process, but can still sort of produce a good, a uh, usable product. And so, you know, again, I think Uniswap, um, uh, the constant product market maker and AMMs in general just happens to be a really nice, a clean um, instance of that. But I think we're starting to see, and it's, it's harder to maybe to do this for other applications, but we're starting to see more people doing it. And ultimately, you know, I think those uh, authored um, on governance minimization, um, that I think these 
protocols ultimately um, could just outcompete uh, the others in the same way that I think like decent, any decent will, will out, can outcompete um, centralized ones in a, for a particular category of, of thing. Super interesting. Okay, so you're, the, the point there is that um, what, what you'd like to see and, and what becomes kind of more un unstoppable are protocols that uh, just don't require that much decision making. So you, you don't need like some like complex, complex like governance system that's token based and like requires like voting or anything like that. It's just like just the system works like how it's supposed to and that's it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think like I think like, look, like as systems get more complex, um, I do think I do think there's some areas that are that just necessarily require governance. And so Uniswap V3 um, introduced, or Uniswap uh, V2 and V and V3 have this have this um, uh, small amount of governance that, that the Uni token controls. But I think that's it's limited. The service area of it is limited as possible. And I think mm -hmm. it's, it can't, for example, steal all the assets in those pools. And mm -hmm. I think that's very valuable because if you put too much pressure on these mechanisms, if you have like a ten billion dollar bounty um, to like subvert this governance. Uh, system, um, you know, to, to take all these, uh, uh, to like the, the prize with the prize being like you get to, to steal all the assets in all the Uniswap pools. I think that makes governance less good at doing the few things that maybe it has to do. Um, mm -hmm. And so it doesn't mean necessarily like that you don't have a governance system. It means don't put too much pressure on it by trusting it with too much stuff. Um, ultimately, like see, treat it as, as a pretty scarce resource and something to be used very, uh, very carefully. So have like a, a few kind of key decisions that uh, governance uh, has to make and, and that's it. Like don't rely on it for like every every action on, on the protocol. Yep. Because like other otherwise, like what would um, protocol tokens be, be used for? Like to, to you, like, I mean, to be clear, like governance tokens have a use. It's just like the, it should be limited, right? Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's for yeah for anything where you actually need where a market mechanism doesn't work or where a, where a hard coded parameter doesn't work. And here, I think like with a lot of these these protocols, you need more parameters. I think one example where I think it, it shouldn't be used unless unless absolutely necessary is like is like limiting what protocol what what tokens, for example, are supported. Right? Like I think if if Uniswap mm -hmm. governance if a Uniswap governance vote was required every time someone wanted to list a pair of tokens on Uniswap, like it, it would never have gotten off the ground. And, and today mm -hmm. it, would be, it would be really hobbled by that because just the permissionless ability to build these, to put these things on top of it is part of what makes Uniswap great, as we were talking about before. And so I think so is so high for having it be, you know, in, involved in every, in every part of the protocol. Like it just isn't automatic. Whereas the nice thing about a governance minimized part of the protocol is just like, it just sort of runs itself. A hot topic for this week has been algo stablecoins, uh, algorithmic stablecoins. So stablecoins that aren't and back to back, um, backed by uh, uh, like uh, U.S. Uh, dollar based uh, assets or by like by over collateralized uh, crypto or, or anything like that. But they have like its own in internal kind of mechanism that uh, that that makes the token maintain its effect. Um, yeah, I don't know if I explained it <laughs> very well, but basically they're not kind of backed by collateral, they're backed by their own internal uh, mechanism. Um, and this one project, Iron Finance, had like this spectacular implosion. We covered it um, very well, I think, um, at the Defiant. Um, but yeah, it's it's been like an ongoing thing because it, it does seem like a holy grail 
of crypto to have this stable coin that also doesn't rely on external kind of fiat currency to maintain its peg to the dollar or to other kind of like stable asset. Um, so yeah, it's been kind of this like big goal to achieve, but very hard to do. And like, we've seen projects like one project after another crash and burn um, as we're trying to do this. So your, your thoughts on this, like, do you think this can actually be done or some people call them Ponzi's like, I don't know what, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I've been following it um, uh, a little, I think it's, I think about the entire thing since, since there was, there was uh, this original paper on seniorage shares that came out of just a long time before Ethereum, I think. Um, and then, uh, and then, you know, basis was a, was a protocol designed to, to work like this and whether this, uh, even is, is possible. I think, um, so far I'm, I'm skeptical, but curious of the general category. I think we do have, um, decentralized stable coins, um, right now. And the design that really has that sort of been. I think uh, dominant today for those is crypto collateralized stable coins. So like, mm -hmm. um, like maker drive. These are, these are both um, projects that the paradigm is invested in. Um, these are effectively, you know, there, there, there's, there's, there's stable coins. They're not backed by, by fiat. They're not, they, there's no money in a bank account somewhere. Uh, uh, you know, there's, there's a real like crypto asset backing it. And there's a mechanism for liquidation where like, if the value of that asset goes down, then some particular person gets liquidated and the system remains solvent as long as it hasn't fast. Um, and so these systems, you know, I think they still have uh, sometimes in the mechanisms that resemble actually like the algorithmic stablecoin ones, like Maker uses its MKR token as kind of a, a lender of last resort to, to re. Um, but I think it doesn't depend too much on that mechanism. And I think there's just been a lot of success with these, with that mechanism. That sort of is, is probably where, uh, where I see the future being mm -hmm. and maybe finding more efficient versions of those. Um, I think jury's out on whether really going below that, uh, that level um, really makes, uh, yeah, really could, could ever be stable in the long run. Cause I think you just, yeah, we have seen a lot of failures there. That said, you know, if one of these, uh, uh, cause like a lot of them, there's a short life cycle. If I see one of them that like that lasts a few years, again, like you start, you start to actually get some Lindy effect there. Maybe, maybe believe that it could, that it could keep going. But so far it's still very early on that. And no, I would not, um, uh, I'm, uh, yeah, very, very wary of that, of that category working. Okay. Um, yeah, fair enough. Okay. And then, uh, to start wrapping up, interested in kind of your, your latest, um, research pieces focus like what are you working on right now so a lot of my recent research i think has been uh kind of like uniswap v3 and uniswap v3 adjacent and in the general sort of uh meta research category of thinking like how do we think about amm design like mm -hmm. what if you if you want for some you know so with with i've been working with portfolio co uh, company open on on an automated market maker for options like what what, you know, can we find one that works? And also like, what are we trying to maximize here? How would we, what's the approach? What's the, the system for trying to design a new AMM? And like right now we're kind of just, just floating around in the dark. I think I, I worked on a, um, an AMM that was designed for, for bonds for, for uh, basically 
um, with a portfolio company called Yield um, that we've been incubating and um, came up with it. We came up with design there, but even for that, like we're not, it's not, we're not, it's not that clear, like really how to make that as an asset, like what's the best AMM for it and how can these things be designed and, and explained. And so figuring out like really, Developing AMM science as a, as a science, I think, um, mm. is one is one sort of meta area I've been looking at. I think uh, MEV certainly. Um, I think in general, uh, yeah, you know, like just just working. I've been working closely across our with our with our portfolio projects, just um, on the things that are interesting to them. Some of them, some confidential for now, but very excited about about some of the stuff that's coming out. Well, okay. So, um, on AMMs, like what's, what's kind of your, your long-term take or like, where, where do you think this space is heading? Like, is it, is it going to replace, uh, like order book based, um, centralized exchanges? Will, will they always live kind of alongside each other? Like what's your view there? I think there's elements of AMMs uh, that will likely eventually, I, I, yeah, I think, I think should eventually, uh, filter themselves into, into the way that, that all exchanges work and pro rata execution thing, where if you're just sort of passively providing liquidity on Uniswap, um, your, your trades are getting executed, not based in, in, it doesn't depend on like when you, when you actually, right. Um, it's just like, it's just proportional to the, to all the orders that are in the, that are in the other liquidity that's in the pool. Um, most exchanges don't work that way. And I think there's, there's this sort of like first in first out um, thing. And then uh, exchanges and more um, centralized, lim central limit order book, centralized exchanges. Uh, there's kind of a lot more gamesmanship around, around market making for that. I do think there might be just some, some, and, and this is, this is an area where I'm somewhat out of my depth, um, but I sort of have this almost religious faith that mm -hmm. there's that there's something there to the idea that uh that someone should be able to just go in define a strategy that is like supported in the base layer of the of the uh order book system um and just benefit from basically providing passive liquidity and the analogy that i use is to if you look at the uh in like the 70s when jack bogle started vanguard it looks like a crazy thing to do just like buy all the stocks like whatever <laughs> you know just just um, market cap weighted, just like just just all the big stocks, and like and just not really try to even evaluate them individually, just buy everything. And it turned out that the one the the, the efficiency of that, like uh, uh, and uh, the massive amount of of capital that could actually be deployed in that way, um, turned out to matter a lot more than you know like whatever. Uh, it just it just sort of like like completely transformed how investing works um, today. I think there's some possibility has the same effect on uh, what today is a very competitive and high margin um, uh, market making world. That's so interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, so maybe what happened to like active versus passive fund management, which I think recently passive fund management and like, just like index based investing surpass active fund management for, for the first time. Um, you think that might happen to uh, market making and liquidity provision. And, and so like in the same way that kind of ETFs allowed for like retail investors to like easily access stocks, maybe, um, these kind of AMMs or like DEXs will allow also like 
for like regular investors to like become market makers. That's yep. That's the basic idea. And I think these market makers, you know, it's a very profitable business, but they, um, they don't deploy that much capital to it. Like they're, they're relatively capital efficient. Um, I think it's, it's possible that if you just sort of have this massive amount of like retail liquidity there, um, that, that could, that could basically kind of upend that, that business model. That's, this is very speculative. You know, I'm not, I'm not an expert in, in, um, traditional market microstructure by any means. Um, I do also think like, you know, Uniswap V3 in some ways, uh, maybe, you know, it seems in the short run to undermine this thesis because, uh, also right now you sort of mm-hmm. do have to be more active than, than Uniswap V2 provider. But again, you still have this pro rata execution. You still have these automated strategies that are built in, um, like built into the, to the core layer. Like you don't have to be going there and placing orders and, and having, and running co-locating next to the, next to the exchange servers to, to be able to do is quite democratized relative to that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ignoring MEV for now, because MEV, MEV, um, not necessarily as democratic yet as it should be. <laughs> right. Very cool. Uh, super interesting. Um, cool. Uh, Dan, I mean, this has been fascinating. I really appreciate your time. Um, yeah, so we're excited to see this go live, but thanks so much. Like I, I could like, yeah, go on talking to you for a long time. You have like such interesting takes. So thanks again. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan of the Defiant, of course. And before we close, here's another word about our awesome sponsors. Experience DeFi. Deposit, earn, and borrow on Aave. Aave is a decentralized, open-source, and non-custodial liquidity protocol to earn interest on deposits and borrow assets. Deposit and start earning interest in real-time directly in your wallet, and swap any of your deposited assets at any time to get some of the best deals on the market. Aave protocol liquidity pools are now available on Ethereum and on the sidechain Polygon. Head over to app.ave.com to get started today. Ensign provides an easy way to build, scale, and monetize DeFi investment strategies. If high gas prices are shutting you out of DeFi, fear not. Ensign is now running a gas subsidy program. The app makes it easy for investors to pull together on strategies lowering costs. The Ensign interface allows anyone to trade, lend, deposit to AMM pools, farm, stake, and more. It is a non-custodial solution and allows for real-time reporting, security, and transparency. Sign up today on Ensign.finance. Don't let high gas costs keep you out of Ethereum. At Balancer, you can trade all you want and get most of the gas costs back in your pocket. In their new Bal for Gas campaign, traders are receiving six figures worth of Bal tokens every week. And with V2 just around the corner, Balancer is becoming the one-stop shop for DeFi liquidity. Balancer V2 brings stable pools and weighted pools tightly integrated under a single protocol, flash loans, lending via asset managers, and much more. Check it out at balancer.finance. The new Kraken app is one of the best places to invest in some of the most popular DeFi assets like Uniswap, Aave, Polkadot tokens, and more. Just download the app and get started in minutes. Plus, you can earn additional rewards through Kraken's industry-leading staking product. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% annually on some of your favorite cryptos. Sign up today at kraken.com defiant 
or type Kraken in the App Store to learn more. Kyber's Dynamic Market Maker, or DMM, is the first decentralized exchange designed to react to market conditions to optimize fees, maximize returns, and provide extremely high capital efficiency for liquidity providers. It aims to be a game changer for DeFi. Depositing tokens to earn fees is also fast and simple with this liquidity easily accessible by dApps, aggregators, or other users. Visit dmm.exchange now. Interested in DAOs? Wondering how to DAO? Colony aims to be the biggest, baddest DAO framework out there. And it's easy. Spin up a DAO in three minutes for half a penny. Issue a token, raise money, govern your treasury, and so much more. Zero coding required. Already got a token? Great. Colony will give it superpowers in seconds. DAOs are all about voting, right? Wrong. Colony is about getting things done. And voting on every little thing ain't that. So in Colony, votes are only necessary if there's a disagreement. Head to colony.io and follow at joincolony on Twitter to learn more. Want to DAO right now? Hit up clny.io slash bounty to join their bounty program and earn their forthcoming token, CLNY. I'll continue to interview all the major founders and influencers in this emerging space. When DeFi eats the world, you can say you heard them here first. Tune in next week.